This podcast contains adult themes and some strong language. Cruising the information superhighway turns up some rather curious stuff. Pornography and piracy on the internet. You ain't on the information superhighway, baby. Where is it? I have here pictures which were copied off the free internet only last week. Gives you an idea of the depravity. Hello. I'm Endo O'Dowd and this is Web 1.0, a podcast series from the Irish Times that looks at arguments and innovations of the early internet. Everything we see today is seen through the prism of online networks, but I'm trying to look back at the origins of these networks and the stories of the people who helped create them. Because there is a flood of vile pornography and we must act to stem this growing tide because it incites perverted minds. On February 1st, 1995, a 73-year-old Democratic Senator, James Exxon, tried to do something no one else had done before, regulate the internet. Mr. President, it's no exaggeration to say that the most disgusting, repulsive pornography is only a few clicks away. The Senator from Nebraska had become alarmed by the amount of pornography on the internet, and he wanted to bring in the Communications Decency Act which is sometimes abbreviated to the CDA. Exxon hoped the bill would prevent access or transmission of pornography on the internet. I'm talking about the most hardcore, perverse types of pornography. The act was debated in the United States Congress and across the media in the following months. While the subject circled in the public consciousness, in May of that year, a court case took place between Stratton Oakmount and Prodigy Services. Prodigy Services had hosted a message board called Money Talk on which anonymous people could post about finance and investing. Stratton Oakmount took issue with some comments posted in October 1994 by a person who claimed to be a lawyer and called Stratton Oakmount, quote, a cult of brokers who either lie for a living or get fired and said that the president of the company, Danny Porish, was a soon-to-be-proven criminal. If the name Stratton Oakmount sounds familiar, that may be because the company's rise and fall was portrayed in the Martin Scorsese film, The Wolf of Wall Street. When I was told that Jonah Hill would be playing a fictional character based on me, I I actually sued uh, Red Granite Pictures, Scorsese... Leonardo DiCaprio's company to make sure my name was changed. This is Danny Porish. The character Danny Azoff, played by Jonah Hill in the film, was loosely based on Danny Porish. Yeah, like an in. I'm, I'm not going to let someone else fuck my cousin. You know, if anyone's going to fuck my cousin, it's, it's going to be me out of, out of respect. And the film's portrayal was less than flattering. It depicts an outrageous amount of drug taking and a hedonistic lifestyle in a brokerage firm that skirted every moral and principle. The, the movie was, you know, based on the truth, but not accurate at all. Everything in the film was fictional, but it was based on true events. There were scenes in the movie that were absolutely bogus. And, and what was the atmosphere in the company like? I mean, everybody worked hard. It was a little bit of a fraternity atmosphere, but a lot of the stuff in the movie is fictional. You know, most of it is fictional. It was a regular brokerage firm, you know. 
No different than Lehman Brothers. But I'm not here to talk to Danny about marrying his cousin, which is true, throwing a dwarf, which is false, or swallowing a goldfish in the office. True. I wanted to hear about how Danny set in motion the Stratton Oakmount versus Prodigy Services case. Lots of people must have been saying lots of things online and offline at that time. Like Jordan Belfort was restricted from being CEO of the company Stratton Oakmount by the SEC from 1989. So what to you was so inflammatory about what was on that Money Talk blog? This was early in the internet. It was 1994. Prodigy had a chat room. So some people posted... I don't even know who they were, you know, it was anonymous posts saying that, you know, the firm was a criminal enterprise and I was a criminal. So I sued them for a hundred million dollars and I won the first round. And then as advice of counsel, I dropped it because, you know, I didn't want to fight with IBM and Sears who own Prodigy. Was your friends, acquaintances, or were you like aware of the blog or blogs at that time? Was that something that you were monitoring and, you know, and trying to keep tabs on? No, no, not at all. I mean, um, you know, to this day, I don't do social media and um, all that stuff. I don't do it. And I never did it then. But um, someone made me aware in early 1994, there was a defamatory post. So I, I sued them and I won the first round. Prodigy services were effectively punished for moderation. The implication being that any editing by websites would leave them liable for all the posts. Websites were thus encouraged not to edit any comments or content on their sites. Despite the court's findings, the strength of Danny Porish and Stratton Oakmount's case would soon come into question. Since then, Danny, you were convicted of securities fraud and money laundering. Was the allegations that were made on the on the Prodigy Services blog, were they accurate? No, I mean, they, they said that you know, uh, the firm was a criminal enterprise, which it wasn't. And yes, I did plead guilty in 1998 for a variety of, uh, you know, white collar crimes. And, you know, some people made money and some people lost money. And in the end, you know, I paid my debt to society. And uh, I moved on in my life. And then um, they created Rule 230 or 231, I don't remember. The section Danny can't remember is the foundation to today's internet. Two senators were appalled by the implications of this case. So they added Section 230 to the Communications Decency Act. Section 230, when it was going through Congress, was referred to as the Cox-Wyden Amendment, which is the name of the two uh, members of Congress at the time who wrote the bill. This is Ashley Johnson from the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. Chris Cox and Ron Wyden, you know, they just kind of tacked it on, you know, while the Communications Decency Act was moving through Congress, they tacked it on as an amendment. Representatives Cox and Wyden added just 26 words to the Communications Decency Act, but their impact was seismic. The cybersecurity professor Jeff Kosseff would call them, quote, the 26 words that created the internet. They read, no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as a publisher or speaker of any information provided by any other information content provider. What this came to mean is that for the billions of people who post on the internet today, they can feel free to say whatever they want. And the websites can't be sued, and the individuals probably won't be, because in all likelihood, they won't be attractive targets. Section 230 resulted in an explosion 
in user-based websites that the owners didn't have to moderate. YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, etc. In hindsight, though, Section 230's connection to the main Communications Decency Act can feel tenuous. It does sort of relate more broadly to the Communications Decency Act in that the Communications Decency Act was related to content moderation as well. It was specifically trying to make it illegal to basically distribute pornography to children or host pornography in a way online that children could potentially see. The Communications Decency Act was, of course, motivated from the fear of children accessing pornography on the internet. A reporter for Time magazine, Philip DeWitt, remembers how this ran in contrast to the utopian outlook that many internet users felt at the time. I was this cub reporter, cub writer at, at Time magazine, and the reporters who were covering the computer beat in the early days, in the back, we're talking about the, the mid-80s, were all ex-hippies and really excited about the internet. And it was very exciting. I think we are with early stage large language model AIs where we were with the internet in the 90s. But it was a chance encounter with Marty Rim, a student from Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh, that would change Philip DeWitt's career forever and have a dramatic impact on the Communications Decency Act and with it, Section 230. When you first came to encounter Marty Rim, like, did you actually meet him, I guess? I never did meet him. I talked to him on the phone, but never met him. But he, you know, he was this deep voice guy who was, you know, very smooth. He was a smooth talker. He he contacted me because I'd written a story about a Carnegie Mellon demonstration. Carnegie Mellon is a prestigious university in Pittsburgh, the alumni of which include the artist Andy Warhol, Nobel Prize winner John Nash, and Marty Rim. Anyway, he was he was a manipulator. He wrote me and said I was the only reporter who understood the issues and he was working on some incredible stuff and would I like exclusive access to it when it was available? I said, sure, exclusive. <laughs> yeah. So I, ne- I didn't hear from him for months and then it, it just, the timing was perfect. But the Senate had passed the Communications Decency Act thing and the House was considering it or vice versa. And he offered me exclusive access to his research, which was being published in a law journal, The Week Between. At this stage, Marty Rim was 30 years old and his paper was titled Marketing Pornography on the Information Superhighway. It was 85 pages long and laden with footnotes. The subtitle illustrated the swagger of the writing. A survey of 917,410 images, descriptions, short stories and animations downloaded 8.5 million times by consumers in over 2,000 cities in 40 countries, provinces and territories. The paper wound up in Georgetown Law Journal, which is prestigious sounding, but crucially not peer-reviewed. He had bullshitted a whole long line of people, including some very influential faculty members at Carnegie Mellon. It, I don't think I might have even looked at it if it hadn't been endorsed. And uh, it, it seemed to have all the bona fides of a serious research paper. And, and it was I was in the middle of writing this cover story that I started to have second thoughts about, wait a minute, how good is this research? It just seems to be a list of numbers and a list of search terms. On July 3rd, 1995, Time magazine splashed on its front page under the headline Cyberporn. 
it had an instantaneous impact on the discussion and fear around pornography on the internet at a very feeble time with the Communications Decency Act and with it, Section 230 being passed through the United States Congress. According to Carnegie Mellon study, 83.5% of all computerized photographs available on the internet are pornographic. Mr. President, I want to repeat that. 83.5% of 900,000 reviewed. But Marty's RIM research was flawed in a number of critical ways. One of which was that the sample size he extrapolated from was not representative of the wider internet community. A lot of RIM's research was based on a private internet board and you had to pay to have access to it. And that's where he got a lot of his stats from whoever that was. And then I bulleted that and put it on a national magazine cover. Yeah. Within hours of being published, the report and the reporting was savaged by people online. Marty Rim found himself completely isolated by the university and old friends of Philip turned on him. It was a horrible, it was really a terrible summer and it felt horrible. And I, you know, I lost a lot of sleep. I worried a lot. I had a lot of anxiety. And it's a, a feeling I wouldn't wish on anybody else. I got an early taste of what it what it was like to be, what's the word they use? Uh, canceled. Canceled. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So uh, Rim definitely got canceled. He had to change his name. I, I had to leave tech reporting for 12 years. You know, I, I luckily I, I found a gig as a science editor and time was, it kept me on, but it wasn't until like enough people had forgotten me that I could come back and, and do anything like what I'm doing now. The internet was rife with rumors and conspiracy theories on the motivations of Marty Rim and Philip DeWitt. There are people who still think that Marty Rim was a put-up job to get this thing rolling. The Christian right had definitely seized on internet pornography as a hot-button issue that they were going to exploit. I mean, I'm not sure they even wanted to control the internet. What they wanted to do was take a strong stance against uh, what they saw as sinful behavior. My sense of it is that the the two things kind of coalesced. Marty was doing his porn study because he was fascinated by porn, and the Christian right saw a way to use him. They may have been in contact with him, I'm not sure, but I think he did his research independent of them. That's my sense. Who is this? (laughs) It's me, Ernestine, Al Gore. Oh, Mr. Veep. Surfing the net. (laughs) Hold on to your semiconductor. I'll load the software right away. This is so exciting, just like the space program, only now it's cyberspace. And you and the president are infonauts. (laughs) Just be sure to invite me back. In a bizarre ceremony on February 8, 1996, that became a little bit more normal, US President Bill Clinton and his Vice President Al Gore signed the Communications Decency Act into law and with it, Section 230. Families heading off on vacation trips will be able to program the fastest route in their car computers. On a rainy Saturday night, you'll be able to order up every movie ever produced or every symphony ever created in a minute's time. When Bill Clinton was elected in 1992, he was still known for preferring a legal pad over laptop, but Al Gore was quite different. 
He was the first vice president to bring a personal computer into the White House and was known for popularising the term information superhighway during the 1992 election. The term may have resonated with him personally as his father, US Senator Albert Gore Sr., was instrumental in bringing about the 1956 Highway Act. To further highlight the lineage, when signing the 1996 Communications Decency Act, they used the same pen as Albert Gore Sr. used to sign the 1956 Highway Act. This law also recognizes that with freedom comes responsibility. Any truly competitive market requires rules. Perhaps most of all, it enhances the common good. The Communications Decency Act met robust opposition and the American Civil Liberties Union, or ACLU, challenged it all the way to the US Supreme Court, who struck out the Act's anti-indecency provisions. But Section 230 was spared. Ultimately, the Supreme Court decided that most of the CDA, the parts that had to do with pornography, were against the First Amendment. Because, you know, we as adults are legally allowed to go online and look at pornography if we want to. This is Ashley Johnson again from the Information, Technology and Innovation Foundation. So those parts of the CDA got struck down and aren't in effect anymore. But Section 230 sort of remained um, because it didn't really directly have anything to do with pornography. As the US Supreme Court was challenging the CDA, Section 230 was also to be tested before the courts. It was a critical case for its survival. It's the federal building we're being told. My mic is open, is that correct? Wow. Look at that shot. Holy it is cow. absolutely incredible. The third. side of the federal building has been blown off. Just the loop. I can barely hear you, but A month before the Stratton Oakmont versus Prodigy verdict, in April 1995, Timothy McVeigh detonated a £7,000 bomb outside a federal building in Oklahoma. Shattered the Murrah Federal Building, killing 168 people including 19 children. It was the worst terrorist act in American history, and Timothy McVeigh could now be sentenced to death. Just six days after the atrocity, a message advertising T-shirts was anonymously posted on American online AOL. The T-shirts had slogans written on them, such as, Visit Oklahoma, it's a blast, and McVeigh for President, 1996. Kenneth Zeron's number was listed in the advertisement. He received hundreds of calls and numerous death threats. This is Kenneth speaking to NPR in 2021. How could you do this? What a loser you are. I mean, I'm just paraphrasing all of it now. You could use your own sense and think of what they might be saying, given what had just happened in Oklahoma City. Zeron contacted AOL, and they took the messages down. But more appeared, advertising further T-shirts. One reading, quote, Finally, a daycare centre that keeps kids quiet, Oklahoma, 1995. Zeron contacted the FBI. The messages continued and his house was put under protective custody. Eventually, Zeron decided to sue AOL for hosting messages with his private details on it without his consent. The case went to the Supreme Court, but was dismissed, citing Section 230. So Zarin v. AOL was the first court case where online service, AOL in this case, um, used Section 230 as a defense to say, you know, look, we did nothing wrong. Look at this law, recent law says that we can't be liable. In court, Zarin was asked if he thought the person posting the messages was a stranger to him. He said, absolutely. I believe I was picked at random. 
Thank you, Counsel. The case is submitted. The court sided with AOL, citing Section 230, and the case has been cited hundreds of times, and it's the reason why YouTube or Facebook is not responsible for what users post on their site. Nobody has ever found out who actually advertised the T-shirts, and Zeron was not happy with the court's findings. The judge made a huge mistake because by removing responsibility, they created chaos. And over 25 years later, the 26 words in Section 230 reverberate still. Section 230, I didn't even know what Section 230 was. When I was going through everything, the stalking and the impersonation, like morally and ethically, I looked at this and thought, you know, this company would intervene until they didn't. This is Matthew Herrick, and his issues with Section 230 start with a bizarre encounter in 2017. This gentleman showed up to my house, and, and I looked up at him, and he looked at me, and he was like, Matthew? And, and I said, yeah, and, and it was this really bizarre interaction between the two of us where he knew who I was, but I didn't know who he was or why he knew my name. It wasn't until he literally showed me my, his phone and my face was a profile on there, and he was under the assumption that he had been speaking to me and that I had invited him over to my apartment for sex. So that whole thing goes down. It's very bizarre. It's very uncomfortable. It was actually, like, resolved itself in a pretty, like, chill way. I mean, I think he walked away very confused and I walked away very confused. After that, it kind of just exploded from there. So someone was impersonating Matthew on dating apps, and then sending those dates to Matthew's house or work with the expectation of sex. So they had like my, you know, height, age, weight, um, and then photos of me. Along with his family and friends, Matthew started reporting the profiles to the dating apps. And I think we reported at least a hundred times and we would just get an automated response that would say, thank you for your inquiry, we'll get back to you when we can or whatever it says. There was somewhere like, 23 or more people that had shown up to my apartment and job in just one day, and then it became extremely violent. Eventually, Matthew discovered it was his disgruntled ex-boyfriend who set up the profiles. And that's kind of like when the district attorney took on my case and they didn't really know what to do, which, you know, we talked about was like, oh, like they were like, fuck, how do we, how do we match these laws up to this crime that's being committed online? Like they didn't know how to do it. One of the dating apps, Grinder, never responded to any of Matthew's complaints. And he had to take them to court to get their profiles down. The case made international headlines. The lawsuit was so explosive, you know. It was almost comical because if you know Herrick versus Grinder, it became a very, really big case in, in the press. And that was gnarly because it was so public. And Grinder denied to get involved or to help out. So then we went all the way to the Supreme Court and they finally showed up for that. And their argument in court was literally, we don't legally have to get involved because we're protected by Section 230. And they dismissed the case as well. So the case ended based on Section 230 defense. In a way that was like, Monstrous. Like, my abuser then knew that he could weaponize that platform specifically. 
because Grinder gave him the green light saying, we're not going to do anything. Like, it's not our problem. So the abuse was happening daily. Sometimes there'd be three or four people that would show up to my a job or apartment at the same time under the impression that they were having some sort of sexual encounter with me, whether it be like a rape fantasy or, you know, like if I'm resisting, it's all part of the game. Um, a lot of people were sent in the impression that there was like group sex happening at my apartment. They were under the impression that I had like crystal meth or I was wanting to buy crystal meth or some sort of drugs. He had created also profiles that said I was a white supremacist. And he was interacting with different people of color and he was inciting violence by calling them names like, you know, like the N-word and then handing out my address to my job or my home saying, come fight me, come find me. So people were showing up to my house under the impression that I was like this huge racist that was like saying all this horrible stuff, which a lot of times, like especially at my job, people would call me and say, don't come into work. There's three men waiting here for you under the impression they think that you're like this like crazy Trump-supporting white supremacist, which is you know, like the farthest thing from the truth. But it was like Grindr knew all this stuff was happening, and they still allowed all of it to continue to exist. Yeah, so yeah. It, was, it was pretty terrifying. Although Matthew's case against Grindr was struck out citing Section 230, his criminal case against his stalker was successful. He was indicted and he went to prison and he got sentenced and he went to jail for, you know, four years. But even after Matthew's horrific experience, he's still unsure if repealing Section 230 is the answer. I think that Section 230 needs to be reformed, for sure. I'm not one of those people that wants to get rid of it because I do believe that it has done like a lot of good for the birth of the internet and the growth and where we are now. But there definitely needs to be some sort of amendments um, or clauses or something that says that like, if companies aren't doing their due diligence and getting actively involved in like really extreme cases such as mine, because mine's not an isolated incident. This happens all the time. I get emails all the time of people asking me, how did I navigate it? So I know for a fact these aren't isolated incidents. So that if they don't get involved, then they should be held liable. With all of this stuff, we're constantly denying access to justice for survivors of these tech crimes. Unfortunately, without like reform of this, then it, it's just going to get worse. Today, Matthew works with the Reclaim Coalition which is a global survivor-centered movement working to transform the networks and culture that enable online sexual violence. My goal is to do is to have some sort of accountability for tech companies that says like, you can't hide behind Section 230 because there's no other industry in our entire world that has the freedom that these multi-billion dollar tech platforms have. Although he himself was pivotal nearly 30 years ago to the formation of Section 230, it doesn't preoccupy Danny Porish much. Like, do, do you think about it often, or does it ever kind of come up to you? Because obviously, no, no it, it, it kind of comes up. You know, when, you know, people tell me, "Hey, Danny, that that was you." You know, that got it going. But it's it's so many years ago. It's you know almost thirty years ago. So I don't spend a lot of time reflecting on it. You know, I just I moved on my life after I got out of prison in September nineteen ninety nine. Danny pleaded guilty to 10 counts of money laundering and securities fraud. 
He also acknowledged that while president of Stratton Oakmount, he oversaw a plan to manipulate stocks, which cost investors hundreds of millions of dollars. He went on to serve 39 months in prison. I paid dearly. I had four kids at the time, and I you know, spent you know, almost four years in prison and didn't see him. So it was a horrible experience. Yeah, we had a lot of fun. And we made a lot of money, but in the end, it was all, you know, a waste of time as the money was taken from us. And uh, I've done my best to be, you know, a good citizen and pay my restitution. And, you know, I don't have, you know, PTSD over it. You know? <laughs> and I just, you know, I've moved on and uh, I have a nice life. Danny does believe, though, that individuals should have a stronger voice when standing against large internet platforms. I do believe that these the social media companies do have a responsibility, like like the New York Times would be or, or your newspaper, you know, that you, you're responsible for what you print. And I, I think that as far as the social media companies, it's gotten way out of hand. But, you know, I'm far be it for me to solve it. And with Philip DeWitt, the cyber porn story continued to prey on his mind. And in 2015, with the 20th anniversary Lumen Large, Philip was motivated to track down Marty Rim and seek answers. This albatross of a story that I've been carrying around for 20 years, uh, I was looking for a way to, to re-air it. After setting up a GoFundMe, DeWitt hired a private investigator who discovered Marty Rim's new name and address. One morning, Philip knocked on his door. A shape moved inside. But Marty Rim didn't answer. Did you feel like it was resolved when he didn't answer? Or did you feel that it was, you know, everybody has a right to be forgotten, I guess? Yeah, I, it, it got down to what kind of a, of a reporter, what kind of a person am I? And I felt I'd gone just far enough. Yeah, like I, I didn't want to feel like a stalker. I mean, there are, and there are reporters who would have hung out there and would have camped out overnight and would have got them in the morning, and that wasn't me. It was just a personal decision. Whatever animosity you might have held to him when you were kind of in exile from technology, do you, do you feel like the you know water under the bridge at this point, or? Yeah, I, 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 I don't not sure I had that much animosity. I, I did feel like I had unfinished business myself but it wasn't uh, marty rim was my fault uh those the people who canceled me were the ones i was mad at yeah. people i considered friends and and they considered me uh they felt betrayed by me i mean they'd warned me off this story they told me this is a bullshit story don't don't use it don't use it and bad on me for 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 doing the story anyway i should have listened Section 230 should be revoked immediately. Remove or totally change 230. Today, Republicans and Democrats in the US both oppose Section 230, but for totally different reasons. And so we live with a law that nobody is happy with, and yet the internet is critically dependent on. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you liked it, please consider subscribing to the Irish Times. It's just one euro for the first month. If subscribing isn't for you, there's still loads of great writing on philosophy, media and culture on theirishtimes.com that you might be interested in that isn't behind a paywall. This podcast was made by me, Enzo Dowd, along with John Casey and Head of Audio in the Irish Times, Declan Conlon. Artwork is by Paul Scott and the music is by Kirk Ozamo and Sergei Sheremisov. <laughs>